host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me today is my good buddy, Jack Fraser. Jack, what's going on, man? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited. We're going to have you back on. We've already done this once so far. We've been doing the mailbag every Friday here in the PDO cast. The listeners seem to really be enjoying it and have been coming through with the clutch questions. So uh, we're going to keep it going. So if you want to get in on the fun for future editions, you can email it to me at dimitri.filipovich at gmail.com or tweet it at us and we're going to get to it. So Jack, let's let's jump right into it. We got so many questions to get into and not enough time. So we'll start with IT asks, biggest surprise or most impressive aspect of the Devils' current success? What do you got for that? Yeah, there's two that stand out. The first one for me is, is the defense, because offensively, I mean, you got into it in the uh, ESPN piece that we both contributed to uh, that, that Greg Wyshynski wrote, uh, where they're definitely more well-rounded offensive team than they were. But for me, it's the fact that they've kind of married their rush chance creation and completely turned everything around on their rush defense. Mm-hmm. Like that was maybe their biggest weakness last year was – you know, if you want to play the PDO cast drinking game when I come on, uh, trading chances would be probably uh, the one that you would uh, you would pick out. And they were doing that last year. They've done that for a couple of years now whenever their skilled players are on the ice. But they've just been completely able to completely shut things down off the rush, which when you're able to generate with speed, which are the most dangerous chances, but at the same time you're not giving that up, you know, it's no surprise that they're winning hockey games the way they are. And I really thought, you know, at least if that was going to happen, it would require some kind of coaching change or, or huge personnel shifts. But, you know, it, it seems to have taken despite the lack of either of those things. Yeah. Well, they've won 11 games in a row. They've been getting contributions for a lot of people. I think the temptation here is to say that the goaltending is kind of the biggest surprise because this is a team that was 31st in team save percentage last year, and they're all the way up to 11th so far this year. And I don't want to take anything away from Vitek Vanacek, who has legitimately been perfectly solid. He's made the saves when he's needed to. I think he's provided a level of stability that they clearly didn't have in the past. At the same time, despite his, despite his 914 save percentage, he's only got less than a goal saved above expected in his 11 games. And that's because, as you mentioned, the team in front of him has just been playing at such a truly, unbelievably elite level. They're first and fewest shots allowed, first and fewest high danger chances allowed no team has given up fewer expected goals against than they have and they've just been absolutely hounding teams with that skating style that for you know a long time was only benefiting them offensively now they're using it to pressure to create turnovers to just dominate in all areas of the ice and so you see it two games ago against the Habs where they're up big for the final 25 to 30 minutes of that game it felt like the Canadians weren't even able to string a pass out of their own zone because they were getting you know, bottled up so much by that transition defense. Against the Leafs last night, they go up 2-1 into the third period, and despite the fact that they wound up giving up a power play goal against, they tied it up and they had to win it in overtime, I thought for that third period they didn't sit back at all. They went after the Leafs, they outskated them, they were the more aggressive team, and so they're kind of putting all of that together now where it's really coming at all fronts, and so it's playing like a immaculately solid group that's really just dominating all three layers offensively defensively and in transition yeah and it's not just the stars like it's not like you know jack hughes and nico he's carrying the team i mean this is a group where every single regular player on the roster is well above break even in every single on ice stat like including the fourth line you know you have guys like thomas tatar and fabian zetterlund who i don't think hmm. 
people would have assumed would be caving in opponents from a night-to-night basis uh, coming into the year. Like, it really is kind of one of those, like, Florida Panthers, you know, Colorado Avalanche a couple years ago type teams where, like, the tide is just carrying the whole group. It's not just a couple guys up top who are dragging the group along. Well, and Jeremy Sonnabend here, a related question asks, or he says, Michael McCurdy's model has Nico Hischier's success so far this season, mostly driven by his line mates and Thomas Tatar and Fabian Zetterlund. And the three of those guys together have been preposterous, right? They've played 105 on five minutes together. They're up 8-1. Shots are 75 to 37. And high danger chances are 29 to 11, according to Natural Statric. And... You know, I think it's pretty clear that while I think the model is suggesting that his year has gone up a level because he's been added to that, those two guys and the three of them together have been at their best, we've seen his year in the past, even though he hasn't had these offensive numbers necessarily, and he, I think he's taken a leap so far there this year, we've seen him drive 5-on-5 five five play with inferior, more passenger-level players before and still look fine and, you know, have a great penalty differential and, and, and be really solid, so... He's taken us a next step this year where I believe he leads the league in five on five scoring on a permanent basis, which is clearly, you know, I wouldn't expect that to continue because I'd say he's still probably the third most dynamic forward behind Jack Hughes and, and Jesper Bratt. But if he's able to be a nearly point a game player or even above as he's been so far with the defensive acumen as well, I mean, that makes him that makes him a, a rock star for them, right? Yeah, I mean, that's one of those model outputs where my first instinct would be to just kind of wait and see. Yeah, uh, Things are still pretty early kind of figuring out who gets credit for what based on these small samples can be a little fraught. So, you know, I, I don't think the eye test is really lying to people early in the season. Feature's been exceptional. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that thing kind of works itself out and gets to maybe a place that you would intuitively expect it to be. Yeah, it's cool seeing how much confidence he's playing with as well. I mean, it, it helps when you're playing this well as a team and you have this much support and when you play in a system like this that's just so free-flowing and up and down, but offensively the way he's attacking off the rush he like just legitimately destroyed Mitch Marner's ankles on a, on a fake slap shot kind of toe drag last year or last game uh that led up led to a sweet scoring chance so yeah he's playing with an immense amount of confidence and looks like an entirely different player offensively to go along with all the other stuff he did well before Zach K here asks thoughts on Austin Matthews's lack of five on five scoring so far and then Shane uh with uh, his tongue firmly planted in his cheek I think asks what changes did David Kampf make this season to be a better 5-on-5 scorer than Austin Matthews? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've had this go on a couple of times before with Matthews. I wouldn't worry about it at all. I mean, I think even last season there were stretches where he was finishing a little bit below expected. I think he's like third or fourth in the NHL in expected goals uh, total. You know, he's underperforming the expected goals, which he never does. I mean, that's he's literally the best in the entire world at outperforming expected goals, shooting the lights out, scoring from anywhere. Uh, I wouldn't worry about it. I think he's, he's looked great. The underlying numbers look very solid. Uh, and he's probably going to score, you know, three or four goals in his next game and make it look very silly to, to be concerned about that. Yeah. Yeah, he started slow, I believe, in October last year. Uh, wasn't really scoring at all. He's got two 5-on-5 goals in 18 games so far after scoring 38 such goals last year. And as I noted, I did a podcast with our friend Jack Hahn recently. Neither of those two goals were actual shots, really. Like, one of them was a tip off a point shot, and the other one was him kind of just, like, jamming it in from the side of the net and it bouncing it off the goalie's pads. And so, for a guy who scored 96 5-on-5 goals in the three-year span before this, which was not only 
first, but the difference between him and second was like the same as second and like the 90th high score or something like that. It was just a preposterous gap. He's going to score a lot of goals. Like the shooting percentage is down. All of the generation stats are where they've been in the past and they've been consistent. I guess my one slight concern or kind of thing that I'm monitoring moving forward, though, is while he individually has been generating the same amount, with him on the ice, the Leafs, or I guess the Leafs as a whole, are just generating less themselves. They seem to have the puck a bit less. They're playing a lower event brand of hockey. It's kind of more methodical and plotting. Their chance numbers in terms of how much they're attacking off of the rush have gone from being one of the best in the league for a two or three year span before to last year kind of you know 10th or something and then now it's like almost 20th I believe in the league so they've been progressively trending downwards in that regard and I wonder you know I think part of it is strategic on their part in the sense that they think this is preparing them better for the playoffs when the game's going to slow down and they have to be able to beat teams in a different way but I do I'm a bit worried that it's a bit of a dangerous game they're playing because it's almost kind of pushing them further or further away from what made them special in the first place. And they might kind of ironically be actually making themselves worse as a result of the way they're choosing to play. Um, so I think the talent level is still there, but I do think in terms of like stylistic stuff, there are some red flags with this team, not just Matthews. Yeah. It's something to keep an eye on uh, early on with Matthews, especially. I, I wouldn't be too worried about it. Uh, and, you know, maybe we pick this up in a couple of months if he's on pace for like 30 goals on the air. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Brendan Griffin, who do you see as Connor Bedard's play style comparable? And I've got a second one about Bedard as well, but let, let's tackle that one first. Uh, neither of us, we should say, are, uh, while we do both work at Elite Prospects Ringside, neither of us are part of the scouting meetings by any means. At the same time, I don't think you necessarily need to be watching a ton of tape to realize that this guy is incredibly special and teams are going to be falling all over themselves to try and increase their chances of, of getting him. Um, but who do you, just from the clips that we've seen of, of him just terrorizing the WHL, who does he kind of remind you of? I, I mean, I really don't have any comparables. Like, I really kind of thought about it. And it's the combination of things that he brings, I mean, obviously his size, the fact that he plays center, uh, his the, the grit that he plays with despite being so small, like how aggressive he is and, and how much he likes to get you know mixed up in in dirty areas and retaliate against guys to try to run him combined with the fact that he seems to have like an Austin Matthews level shot right. is, I, I mean, that's kind of the draw with him is that he's the kind of player that I don't think we've really seen. Uh, certainly not in a very long time. And I, you know, obviously there's still plenty of track to go to see, you know, how it all translates at the NHL level. But I, I mean, he's he really is kind of a unique player in my eyes, and, and I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, first of all, seeing him at the World Juniors, uh, and then seeing how it translates when he finally is able to reach at the NHL level because we've been waiting for a real long time for this kid. Yeah, I was gonna say he almost reminds me of Connor McDavid's ability to just get to, get to the net on a rush with will. Now, part of that might just be because he's so superior to everyone else he's playing against, but that in combination with Austin Matthews' shot is just a preposterous combination of skills so far in 21 whl games he's got 19 goals and 46 points he has 135 shots the only other player in the league over 80 is owen zellweger who is a draft plus two player who probably should be playing in the nhl this season but the ducks just decided to send him back down to, to run rough shot over over that league so he really is in a league of his own in that regard the, the i guess the follow-up question here from mitch trollope is which of the tanking teams do you hope get bedard 
based on their current personnel and the style of play. So I guess like the most fun combination as opposed to who you think is most deserving. Yeah, I, I mean, there's two that stand out to me right off the bat. Uh, the first one is uh, the Blue Jackets, just because I don't think there's anybody who could really match in terms of the talent you would be able to play with right away. I mean, the prospect of having, you know, like we alluded to, the, the shot that he has next to Johnny Gaudreau for the foreseeable future uh, is a real inviting one, even if it might, you know, two players that short on one line, line might uh, freak out all the old hockey men. <laughs> Uh, the other one for me is Anaheim. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, there's so many connections you can make there. Obviously, there's the McTavish connection. We saw them play so well at the World Juniors together. Uh, but, you know, just in a broader sense, the amount of young talent that they've managed to assemble, even if obviously it hasn't come even close to clicking to a playoff caliber squad, uh, I think those are two teams where he would have some very interesting pieces around him uh, that could maybe build up to something really impressive. Yeah. I, I had the Ducks as well just because I think based on the players they already have in place, even though it hasn't translated at all so far where they've been far and away the worst team I've seen in the NHL this season. I think the the, the pure talent of the individual pieces they have in terms of the the youth would be really fun to play off of. I've also got the Sabres here um, because, yeah. you know, I think they've done a really good job of drafting the past couple of years. It helps when you have the first overall pick a bunch, but... You know, they already have Rasmus Dahlin in place, who's looking much more like the player that we thought he was going to be coming into the league, where he's just dominating offensively every night. Owen Power looks impressive as a teenager at the NHL level, and so they've got the pieces there, and I think that it would be really fun to just add, like, an offensive supernova like Bedard to uh, to that mix. So I've got the Sabres. Um, Tyler here asks, Eric Carlson to Ottawa. What's the case for it being a smash success, and what's the case for it being absolute stupidity? And Neil asks, who in the world has the will and the cap space to take on Eric Carlson's contract, even if half the salary is retained? I, I mean, it's it's such a great story. It's a it's a very nice idea. You know, Carlson comes back to the Senators as a contending team and then finishes up his career where he started it. I just can't make it work in my like any any time that I try to kind of think out how it would make sense i mean the sheer amount of salary that would need to be retained for a number of years like that already adds such a huge price tag to whatever trade is happening not to mention that almost any team that would be acquiring him would have to have the money going back the other way as well i I mean i've seen people talk about oh well the feds can just put josh norris in there like all right yeah okay that's that'll be a great plan uh look i mean the thing with carlson i find him very interesting season because like, obviously, his production has been crazy. Obviously, he's scoring a ton of goals. Uh, but I, I think it's partially the result of people having maybe underrated what he did last year. Uh, again, for production reasons. Because, like, if you look at the underlying numbers, if you even look at the micro stats, uh, Carlson was a great offensive player last year. He was one of the best offensive defensemen in hockey last year. Like, he was doing plenty of stuff with the puck, you know, carrying it making those crisp breakout passes that we remember. Like, he was dominant, and he was just as bad defensively last year as he kind of sneakily has been this year. Like, it's not like he suddenly, you know, undid all the surgeries and and was able to skate backwards the way that he once did again. Uh, Carlson is a great player. You know, I think this season is, is building on what he's been kind of building back up to in San Jose. But given his age, given the injury history, and especially given the fact that he is still not a great defensive player, 
by any means. And, you know, you look at how that Ottawa defense is constructed on the left side. Thomas Shabbat, obviously a very offensive player. Jake Sanders having stepped in and I think shown that he's has a, a much higher offensive upside than maybe some people gave him credit for. It's hard for me to kind of figure out how a mid to late thirties, Eric Carlson with his cap hit is going to really fit on that blue line, you know, moving forward as they finally, you know, with their cap books pretty much already filled up uh, trying to actually compete for a cup. So it's a real nice idea. I'm not going to be angry if it happens. Hmm. I just don't really see the fit there. Yeah, I guess there's two ways to approach this, right? One is a, would it be cool? Would people love it? Yeah. <laughs> and would it make their team better right now, this season, and maybe in the year after and the one after that? Yeah, I clearly would. I, I think there's no disputing that. The question of, it, is it in their best interest long-term and acknowledging that opportunity cost with that contract and should they do it? where they are right now I think is an entirely different answer and listen like he's on pace right now for 47 goals and 121 points I don't think we need to insult the intelligence of our listeners to suggest that or to you know bring up the on ice and individual shooting percentages and to say well he's going to regress because yeah it's clear that this is fueled a lot by that now at the same time you mentioned he was doing a lot of this stuff before and it just wasn't really getting picked up because the goals the puck wasn't going in as much for him and and his teammates He's looked really good this year. I think he's playing with like a lot of that style and flair again. And yesterday against Detroit, he's doing like a between the legs, no look, draw pass back to a teammate for a one timer. He's doing stuff yeah. that's just like reminiscent of when Eric Carlson was just kind of yoloing it and doing and one stuff early in his career. And that's really fun to see. And I think we all benefit from that as NHL fans. He's 33 in May. I, I think if San Jose could somehow be talked into retaining half of his salary. million per for the next four years isn't that egregious. Like, I think it's fine. I, whether San Jose would be willing to do that and what it would cost as, as a, you know, dead cap casualty, basically to, to, to facilitate that remains to be seen. I'm, I'm skeptical. I know that they ate a bunch of money on Burns, but this is an entirely different animal in terms of how much money that, that would take. Um, and, and you're right. Like it would help positionally in terms of a right shot defenseman for them, but what they need is they need John Marino, right? They need like someone who can actually help bridge the gap in terms of the things that the rest of their players don't do well enough right now. And Carlson right now is just not really that it's, 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 I don't want to say it's more of the same of what they have because like he clearly make them better and adding a player of Eric Carlson's caliber to the, any roster would, would help and make it a more entertaining product. But in a way, like I think they'd be much better off using whatever resources it would take to make that happen on someone who might not be as flashy and might not be as good of a feel-good story, but would make their team better in more subtle ways. Yeah, you know, I mean, maybe in the offseason we'll be talking about, you know, when teams have more cap that are that's loosened up for that kind of move, maybe there will be some options that are looking persuasive. But, I mean, for the time being, I think he might be stuck in San Jose for the foreseeable future which is, is too bad, but at the same time, I mean, like you alluded to, he's playing with confidence, he's making all these flashy moves and playing with flair. It's kind of a little bit easier to make those risky moves, you know, and, and really kind of take control when you don't have the pressure of actually winning hockey games in front of you. Right. So it may be that even if we do have to watch Eric Carlson wind down his career in San Jose, 
at least maybe he can do it with some style and some flash and, uh, you know, keep playing himself in the Norris conversations because hockey is better when, uh, when he's there. Yeah, I completely agree with that. All right, one more question before we go to break. Samuel Fleming asks, is Joe Pavelski going to get to 1,000 career points this year? So he's currently at 943 after having 19 in his first 17 games. He had 81 in 82 games last year, which was a career high for him. Some quick math here. He needs 57 points in his final 65 games to reach that milestone, which seems doable. I guess the only concern really for me, beyond the fact that you know the percentages are high right now, and if he goes through a bit of a lull here with that regressing, that could bring down his pace, is that assumes full health, and he's going to be 39 in July, and I know that he hasn't missed a game in the past two years, but whenever you're talking about really any player playing in the NHL, they could get hurt on any given night. But for a player at that age with the amount of mileage he has on his body, um, it's a bit riskier to just project him that he's going to play all 65 of those games to end the season. But I guess if if, if he does, health permitting, um, he should be able to at least flirt with that mark this season, which is pretty remarkable. Yep, totally agree. The percentages are certainly high but he's got himself a nice cushion and it's not like he has to put up you know it's not like he has to score like a 90 point pace the rest of the year to get it done so it'd be a nice story and i mean you know him and hints and robertson you hate to bet against them to do anything that involves offensive production so i'm all for it yeah they've eased up on off of his usage so far he's playing just 15 45 per game which is like the lowest he's pretty much ever played, I think, since he was a rookie, um, which is good and smart, and they're like making optimizing his minutes. With that first line out there, they're up 18 to 3 in 165, 166 minutes, I should say, uh, which is just preposterous. And he's playing on a top unit power play that is third in the league in goals and fourth in expected goals. So he's when he's out there, even if it's less often, he's in positions where they are going to score, and that line is really really good so i'd like to see it and it's a pretty remarkable story because i don't know how you felt about this but that off season when he left san jose i thought it was actually a pretty reasonable decision on san jose's part to, to let him walk because i just i was like man you know at this age with how many games he's played this seems like a bad bet and then now here we are i know he's playing on another one-year deal right now but it seems like he will probably be able to do this for as long as he like really wants to, and he seems to enjoy doing it. So, um, you know, 1000 points is not anything to be taken for granted and he needs to get there first, but I think he's going to blow well past that. Cause I assume he's going to play for at least a couple more years. Yeah. I don't think anybody could have been reasonably expected to sort out that he was going to turn out to be, you know, one of the highest IQ veteran players that we've seen in a very long time in terms of playing within his physical limits and still managing to, set up his line mates, you know, like a few other players in the league. So I, I'm, I'm rooting for him. I mean, he was maybe one of the more underrated players in the league in the 2000s or 2010s, excuse me. Mm-hmm. So uh, the fact that he's getting the recognition, even if it's a little bit late, uh, you know, thousand points, that's a heck of an accomplishment. Yep. So I hope he gets there. Yep. Totally agreed. All right, Jack, we're going to take a break here. And then when we come back, we're going to keep answering the listener questions here on the Friday Mailbag episode of the Hockeypedia Cast, streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, welcome back to the Hockeypedia Cast, doing a Friday Mailbag here with my pal Jack Fraser. Jack, um, let's keep it going. Devil is in the details here, asks, 
who are the three organizations furthest from being turned into a championship team and why? Well, I think we just, well, we already talked about San Jose. I think that's the <laughs> obvious answer. Uh, they just have not been able to accumulate prospects or futures, uh, at least not at the rate that you usually like to see from a team that's been at the bottom of the standings with their consistency. Uh, and obviously their cap situation is pretty, uh, pretty overwhelming. It's going to be kind of difficult for them to actually start kind of clearing out those guys and getting returns on them uh, like you would hope for. Uh, Philadelphia is obviously another that stands out to me. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I know that they're not even really rebuilding right now, that they think that they can compete, and, and Carter Hart is kind of giving them the illusion that they actually can. You know, we'll see if he keeps playing like Dominic Hasek for the rest of the season. Um, after that, I think it's a bit of a grab, grab bag. Uh, you know, were those two uh, teams both on your list, or do you have uh, even more that I didn't well, think of? I didn't have the Flyers. Um I probably should have because you're right. I think I think part of what I'm looking for in this answer is like a team that is uh, deluded into thinking they're not bad right now, right, even though right. they objectively are because that means to me that unless there's some sort of an unforeseeable fundamental change on the fly, they're going to keep just plowing ahead and taking kind of like, um, you know, shortcuts to try and be more competitive right now, and that's going to almost push them further away from actually competing for a Stanley Cup. So, yeah, the Sharks are there. Like, I think if they had traded Tomas Hurdle for a massive package of futures last summer and then did so, or last trade deadline and did so again with Timo Meyer now, they'd still have Vlasic and Couture and Carlson, of course, to, to contend with in terms of, um, you know, depreciating assets on big-ticket contracts. But at least they'd have a bunch of futures in place and young prospects and things to, to look forward to. I think So I think they've kind of pushed their timeline back even further as a result of that. I've got the Coyotes um, yeah. purely for the obvious reasons. Like I, you need to spend a certain amount of money to legitimately compete for a Stanley Cup in the NHL or build a good enough organization to have a chance to do so. And I'm just skeptical that unless there's serious changes, they're going to be willing to do so or have the appetite to, to do what it's going to take to get there. So I've got them. And um, unfortunately here for the for the local market, I've got the Canucks on my list as well. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would have had them there. Here's uh, the thing. Just because, yeah, make your case. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you go for Well, it. they're clearly better than a lot of these teams that you'd conventionally think of even if the standings don't necessarily reflect it now right like they've got the building blocks in Elias Pettersson, Quinn Hughes, Thatcher Demko like there's reason to believe this team should be better I just think as an organization and maybe part of it is just me being biased living here and kind of following and more closely on a day-to-day basis it's just it's so rotten man like their decision making in terms of how they operate from deciding to give JT Miller the extension they did this offseason. Now we'll see what's going to happen with Bo Horvat, who is an upcoming 28-year-old unrestricted free agent who's second in the league in goals and is their captain, but is going to require a massive contract. What they're going to do with that. They've got Albrecht Millarsson, who's making $10.5 million in base salary next season. So for all the talk of like what they're going to do to get rid of his contract and how they're going to move him, unless they pay significant future assets to get someone to take that it's not happening and it doesn't make sense for them to do something like that so for me like i think they're gonna have to wait a couple of years here unless there's really just significant changes to get out from some of this inefficient spending they've already incurred both because of current management and also clearly previous one in jim benning and by the time they get there 
all of a sudden you're talking about the building blocks that we really like being at kind of different or starting to enter different phases of their careers, potentially, both in terms of age and how much they're going to cost. So for me, I just don't really see a feasible plan for how the Canucks is currently constructed are going to suddenly turn into a legitimate championship contender overnight. I think that's fair. For me, my main consideration when thinking about this question was about the pillars. Like it was kind of the teams that have not even started putting that group together yet. Because I I agree with you on the direction of the Canucks, on their priorities, on, you know, the the issues with maybe how the organization is is run uh, or or managed from the top. But, I I mean, fundamentally, I just have a difficult time looking at Pedersen and Hughes and Demko, you know, for all the the flaws that have been around them and, and the flaws with, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Demko's struggles you've talked about in pretty great detail on here. Uh, I, I like those building blocks so much and the idea of, you know, maybe they add a top five pick this year to, to add another pillar there. I mean, you know, considering how how top heavy the draft is this year, uh, I, I just, I don't think they're going to win a cup anytime soon. You know, I mean, there's 32 teams in the league and, right. Uh, the vast majority of them are not going to win a cup in the next five years. But I at least, even if maybe the ages are going to be concerning sooner rather than later, I, I still at least like the fundamentals enough to think that, hey, you know, maybe Elias Pettersson scores 110 points next year and Quinn Hughes wins a Norris and Thatcher Demko wins a, wins a Vesna and all the other stuff doesn't matter quite so much. It's It's not likely, but at least it's more likely than – you know, Sean Couturier right. uh, leading the Flyers to a Stanley Cup or something like that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, getting those building blocks of that age and skill level is the hardest thing to do. And so they've already got that. So it's almost like they, by default, should not be in this conversation. I'm just so skeptical on, like, the appetite and willingness from ownership down of the way they've operated to do what it's going to require to actually build a sustainable championship contender here that... I just think it's going to take so long for that to happen, and I'm 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 dubious that it will. But you're right; they they probably shouldn't even be in that conversation just because they have those players, and the other teams in consideration can only dream of getting them. So um, that's fair enough. All right, we got a question here from Kyle Bland asks, "What's up with Nathan McKinnon's defense this year?" So I wasn't really even on my radar. Like I've watched a lot of Avalanche games, I haven't necessarily noticed anything. I went pulled up his numbers on Natural Statric with him on the ice. The Avalanche are giving up 3.25 expected goals against per 60 at 5 on 5 and 15.2 high danger chances against per 60 at 5 on 5, which are both really, really high numbers, especially when you think about the fact that the Avalanche have basically been the best 5 on 5 defensive team in the league this season in terms of suppression. Um, So that's kind of surprising to see. They've had a lot of injuries. He has played most of his minutes with Miko Ranton and Atari Lekkonen, so it's not like he's necessarily having to just carry around inferior players. What um what are you seeing in the numbers and and just in general in terms of why McKinnon's on ice metrics are so bad defensively? Yeah, I was kind of taken aback by this the same way that you were, because it wasn't something that I had, had realized was going on. I, I I mean like with so much other stuff early in the season, I think it's something to to check in on a bit later on to see if maybe this is just a function of how the ads are playing or, or how McKinnon is playing offensively earlier in the year, how the line is clicking. Maybe they're trying to play more off the Russian counterattack than they have in the past. I mean, we talked a lot about, you know, these star players and how they impact the game defensively and how those numbers can be affected by decisions they're making offensively. 
McKinnon has kind of jumped around in terms of what his defensive impacts look like. He's been confident defensively. He's been a high event player. I think last year uh, we've seen him, I think, play perfectly decent defense when it really comes down to it in the playoffs. So I, I think he's really one of those players where what his defensive impact looks like pretty much depends on what he's deciding to do defensively rather than any great defaults in his skill set or did uh, any big flaws in his skill set. Right. So it'll be interesting to, to kind of keep an eye on this if, if the Avs continue to be such a good defensive team and he's really sticking out like a sore thumb. But I, I, I would my, my first way of investigating that would be to look at how he's creating offense and, and maybe how some downstream effects of that are affecting his numbers. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a sort of statistical blip as opposed to um you know an indictment on his ability defensively um it comes and goes but you're right when it, when push comes to shove when it matters most like we've seen him be capable of and there's nothing in terms of his physical skill set to suggest that he can't play at least good enough event defense and ultimately with players like him and mcdavid and stuff i think we'd agree that one chance they give up generally is not the same as one chance they create and so i'm fine with that as long as you know you're on the right side of things it's fine if it's not as lopsided as you'd like to you'd like to see in terms of pure share so um yeah just something to monitor moving forward all right we've got another question here asks why um why do public analytics darlings like mike riley oliver bjorkstrand and even potentially ethan bear appear to have a lot less trade value to nhl teams than um than we'd think is it kind of an indictment on public analytics and a a limitation of what they're capable of kind of ascribing value to or is it just oversight and ignorance by teams in terms of not really paying attention to it i thought this was a really interesting one i mean when it comes down to it like part of what makes a player an analytical darling is that they're kind of a diamond in the rough that people aren't really paying attention to like once you become a player that everyone around the league values and knows it's really good you suddenly cease to be an analytical darling. Like, I don't think a lot of people would describe Devon Taves in his current form or, or Nichushkin in his current form as analytical darlings, even if they were kind of the poster boys for, you know, the players that the stats nerds were crowing about before they really broke out. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that go into these players not being valued as much as, you know, maybe if some public SAS people were put in charge of teams, we might think they should be. A lot of it comes down to the cap. I mean, all three of those players are guys with years left on their deal. Or, well, I think Barron maybe is on his last deal, but he at least has a little bit of cap uh, associated with him. Uh, I mean, the way that so many teams that are trying to compete, and, and not by coincidence, the teams that have invested very heavily in analytical departments uh, don't really have the flexibility to be making moves for those kinds of players, I think affects the market on them, especially when they have years remaining, like, like Mike Riley, for example. Uh, but I, I think for certain players, I mean, Baron Riley certainly fit this description. There are some teams that if you have a player who in aggregate has a very strong effect when he's on the ice in terms of how he pushes play, but does have a tendency to make those kinds of risky plays in the defensive zone or, or, or you know, key turnovers or mistakes, you know, those are sacrifices that maybe teams are willing to absorb on players that have come up in their system or maybe are, you know, top of the team players uh but when they're trying to think about maybe adding some depth or even like a number four maybe they're not willing to swallow that kind of risk as much so for as much as as i like a player like mike riley who is an excellent puck mover i think an underrated defensive player when it comes to defending against the rush i can see why teams are setting their pro scouts out to watch him 
they see the mistakes that he is occasionally want to make in the defensive zone at key moments and are just thinking this isn't something that we're willing to put up with even despite the strong impact that he has on the ice maybe at a macro level and that's not something that people in the public sphere who are just looking at the overall impact uh, are really worried about as much yeah well I, I think Riley is an interesting one especially because we've seen him bounce around but we've also seen him succeed in different situations right so he was putting up really good numbers on a bad team then we see the boston bruins a good team go out and pay a third round pick to acquire him him play in their top four that one postseason two years ago i believe in particular his numbers by by my sort of zone tracking were amongst the best of any defenseman in the playoffs and it was like very subtle stuff he wasn't making home run passes out of the zone it was very short kind of crisp passes but it was leading to you know positive gains for the players he was playing with and then we saw the Bruins a good team give him a three-year extension so they clearly liked him enough to to keep him aboard and pay him accordingly and so now he's available and he passed through waivers and no one claimed him and all that because of the contract and because most teams that would be interested generally can't afford to really fit in that deal but I, I kind of push back on the idea that he's a player like him isn't valued because we've seen the Bruins go out and and value him. Um, the, there is a survivorship bias clearly involved in terms of players that were initially analytics darlings, as you mentioned, and then kind of outgrow that. The other point that I would make as well here is I don't think there's kind of a bit of a, a feedback loop here. Like we think that all 32 NHL teams have their own staff and they each have their own, you know, research and scouting and evaluations on players. And and certainly there's, you know, discrepancies in terms of how teams see certain players. But there's also a surprising amount of groupthink, I think, where like if a player gets a reputation or gets perceived to, you know, have a certain weakness that you just can't get past in terms of something, either a physical limitation or something he does on the ice in terms of his skill set that really sticks out, as you mentioned all of a sudden teams are can't just can't overlook that. And so if a guy goes to another team, he doesn't really get a clean slate to kind of start from scratch and really get a fresh start with that team because he comes in with that baggage already of, all right, well, this is what we've seen on tape from him in the past, and this is why he didn't work out at his past stop. So we're going to play him on the third pair. Or we're going to healthy scratch or We're not going to give him an actual fair shake. And so then that player fails at a second stop, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, see, analytics were wrong in the first place. And... I just think sometimes those players just don't really get an actual chance to kind of reach their ceiling that they otherwise might have, if not for that. Yeah, I always kind of think that there being two tiers of analytical darling players, if we want to use that term. There's the guy who puts up the really, really great results in a small role or on a good team or in a very specific situation under very specific deployment where you know, we look at the numbers that we adjust for all these things and we say, okay, I think there might be something there. Like there's something interesting about this player. He's, you know, a diamond in the rough. He's, he makes less than a million bucks. Like a team should really take a chance on this guy. And then there's the, okay, this guy has played top six or top four minutes on multiple teams of varying qualities and his micro stats all look really good under the hood. And, you know, this is something that teams are really missing out on that you know that's like the Devontae's kind of players is you know what I would classify in that category Mm -hmm. you know I I feel a lot more confident about the second kind of analytical darling saying okay I think teams are systematically undervaluing what this guy brings to the table than the first guy who 
you know, for every guy who comes out and turns out to be a brilliant player, you get plenty of, you know, Victor Metes or Travis Dermott or that kind of player where, you know, maybe they belong on an NHL roster, but, you know, nobody's kicking themselves for not having given this guy a shot, you know, as their number three or number four defenseman. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Okay. Bull Flash here asks, uh, based on the results you've seen on the ice, what's the ideal salary allocation spread for a team between forwards and defensemen? I don't really have an answer for this. I haven't given it a nearly enough thought in terms of giving precise numbers to it, but just in terms of like a, a thought exercise for you um, and in terms of team building, obviously it depends on who becomes available at what time and you know how you draft and, and all that, but just in terms of like your ideal roster construction how much of the cap are you theoretically in a best case scenario or an ideal world devoting to your forwards versus your defensemen? Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of in the same zone as you where this isn't something that I have a right. answer right of fatigue for. I think it's a really I interesting mean, would, like thing to think about. It though, is. Right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I got to say like as much, as much heat as it gets, I do kind of like the idea of giving yourself a lot of flexibility in terms of filling up your depth ranks with maybe some undervalued cheap players i mean obviously it's kind of a shibboleth if you've been uh, remotely interested in analytics for the past 10 years to say oh we don't want more expensive players at the bottom of the lineup I, I mean for me the interesting efficiencies come from the possibility of maybe paying a little less for your goaltending mm-hmm. and maybe i mean taking another level and maybe taking the money that you might have spent on a huge name goalie and putting it into your goalie coaching department potentially yeah. Um, I, I think that those are kind of the interesting, you know, market uh, uh, solutions that you could maybe take a look at. But for me, when it comes to allocating money for defensemen versus forwards, I, I mean, I think the forwards in general are more important. And I certainly wouldn't want to be spending a lot of money on number three and number four defensemen, especially as unrestricted free agents. But so much depends on the age of the players involved, whether these are RFA or UFA deals, et cetera, et cetera, that I don't think that there's necessarily a one-size-fits-all solution for sorting that out yeah yeah i would i i agree with that i think you know just as a raw example i'd probably yeah i'd prefer forward depth and then i'd like like one kind of anchor defenseman that i trusted to just like with whoever he plays with just do really well and can just basically lean on them to play a lot and then figure it out elsewhere as opposed to you know spreading out the wealth with like a bunch of medium range defenseman i actually have the stats for goalies because i was on uh i was on our pal thomas drance's canucks talk show before this and we were talking about the avalanche so i looked it up so you know notably in the past two off seasons first they let philip grubauer walk he gets 35 million from seattle then last summer they let darcy kemper walk to to washington he gets 26 million from them right now they're spending i believe like 5.4 million against the cap total for alexander georgiev and Pavel Fransuz, the only teams that are spending less on their goalies are the Blackhawks, the Flyers, the Penguins, the Sabres, the Coyotes, and the Minnesota Wild. And they're first in 5-on-5 save percentage, third in all situations save percentage. And, you know, I think what that tells you is something that's kind of intuitive in that the players in front of the goalie, for the most part, except for, I guess, like in the rare examples of a Vasilevsky or Shesterkin potentially where they can stand on their head and make everything else better around them, it matters more what's in front of them. And so if you can build out a big, uh, a really good group of skaters, you can afford to basically just 
get a goalie that's fine and limit what they actually have to do and face and it'll work out and so I love that because the Avalanche, for all the things they've done well, have clearly shown an ability to not become infatuated with goalies and pay a premium for them. And I think it's been key for their success and will be moving forward. And, and that's something that, you know, teams paying attention should really kind of be be looking at and incorporating themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and again, anything that you can do behind the scenes that doesn't go against the cap uh, to make your group better uh, and, you know, the goalie coaching is, is a big example of that. Your scouting department, you know, I, I mean, you listen to Kevin Woodley talk for more than 10 minutes and you think this is the biggest market inefficiency that I've heard of. So mm-hmm. I, I think that there's interesting ways that teams can take advantage of maybe how the market's been working for the past little while. Uh, okay, let's do one final quick question here before we sign out. Uh, Simon Cooper asks, what single player drives you crazy in terms of their actual performance versus their perceived potential? Or I guess we could also frame it like the way that they're talked about um, in terms of like their reputation around the league. Well, I mean, there's this, I mean, there were the obvious ones for a while, the Seth Jones is, yes. I mean, Drew Doughty before he started caring again and then suddenly became a, <laughs> excellent defense one once again right um I, I mean the interesting ones for me are just the ones where the production isn't actually as high as you would expect it to be based on the reputation uh i i mean you know you hate to to kick a guy when he's down in terms of i know that he's had the injury issues lately but i was i was really truly shocked to kind of look at grok betzer's results so far this season yeah. and i know he's on a four game point streak he's got I think, you know, two of those are assists and others or another two are, are secondary assists. Um, but I mean, when he signed that contract with the Canucks in the summer, I, I was really surprised, I think, by, by how low his five on five scoring, especially the goal scoring had been in the past couple of years. Uh, because, I mean, I thought of him as being, you know, like a, a real, you know, top line scorer. And I think a lot of people in, around the league or around hockey can still have that idea of him. Yep. But I think that there's a lot to kind of rebuild to for him. And, and I hope he does it because obviously he's had a real tough time lately with the injuries and, and, and the issues in his personal life. But I was, I was kind of surprised to, to see, looking at the stats this season, just how much the struggles were kind of adding up for him. Yeah, yeah, I was blown away when you posted the uh, like the on-ice chart where he's basically getting like I think, I think quite literally the worst results of anyone in the league, right? Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. And, and pretty far and away from anybody else on the Canucks too, which is not – at all what you expect, especially given the struggles they've had so far. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's wild to think that um, he's still got zero goals for a player who, in theory, when you see him shoot the puck uh, the way he should and the way he has in the past, is should be scoring a lot of goals and it just it just hasn't happened for him so uh that's a good that's a good shout there yeah one for me used to be like this is not applicable really anymore but the one that i always think of for this is john carlson where for a long time like you'd watch him and you know he had a reputation as being like a top defenseman but you'd watch him and like the individual skills were all amazing like he could move well when he was younger physicality big shot everything and then all of the on ice results weren't actually anything special and then he scored a bunch of points i think you know either won a norris or was, was a finalist one of those years got a big contract the capitals won a cup and it's a bit of a moot point now but um he was always a player for me where it was like the reputation just wildly exceeded what i was actually seeing in terms of the results from him so um okay Jack, this was a blast. We uh, we got through a bunch of questions. We unfortunately weren't able to get through all of them because the listeners came through with, uh, with such a, a high quantity and quality of great questions. So uh, thank you to all of them for that. I'll let you plug some stuff. What um, Where can people check you out and kind of 
give them a, give them a shout in terms of, you know, where you're at and, and what you've been doing? Well, you can read my stuff as always on EP Ringside. I'm actually going to be writing about Eric Carlson in a little bit. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah, going to be expanding on that kind of comparing his season last year to this one because I, I do think that, you know, how good offensively he was last year has been a little uh, undervalued. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm interested to dig into that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, I guess, for as long as you can. <laughs> uh, hopefully that doesn't change uh, dramatically in the next couple of days uh, at JFreshHockey. I did start an Instagram Oh, at jfresh.hockey because uh, somebody very annoyingly took the jfresh hockey label a couple of months ago. Uh, um, and yeah, that's pretty much it for me right now. Uh, just a lot of, a lot of hockey stuff, still posting those highlight videos uh, on a daily basis as well. Nice. Uh, so, yeah. All right, pal. Well, this is a blast. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Definitely. Uh, definitely. Everyone should go subscribe to EP ringside. You, I'm looking forward to reading that Carlson piece. I just put out a big uh, Tage Thompson breakdown this week as well. So people can check that out and uh, we'll be back next week with more here in the hockey PDO cast. So thank you for listening. Have a great weekend and we'll be back soon with more here of the hockey PDO cast on the Sportsnet radio network.